Well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Good morning. It's a good. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be with you uh, this morning. Um, we're continuing our series. So last Sunday in our series, Christmas in Isaiah. So this is the fourth week of Advent, and we're looking at uh, how Isaiah points towards uh, not just the first coming of Jesus, but also the second coming of Jesus. Um, I love Christmas. It's probably my favorite holiday. I uh, really enjoy it. There's lots of things I enjoy about Christmas. Um, but I also recognize that for many people, Christmas can be a very difficult season. Um, it's difficult for many people to join in on the Christmas carols or to put on a smile or to see all the happy people because uh, some this Christmas are uh, just struggling and pushing through debilitating depression. That it's like a dark cloud that covers everything in their lives. Others are being you keenly reminded during this time of year of a beloved family member or friend whose absence is especially felt during the holidays because they're no longer with us. Other people are enduring chronic pain or sickness. It's just this constant presence of pain that overshadows everything and wants to intrude in upon the happiness of the season. But the good news is that if that's where you are this Christmas, that Christmas is a time of hope. The season of Advent, and what that word Advent means is coming, so I can refer to the coming of Jesus, it reflects back upon Jesus' birth and it expectantly looks ahead towards Jesus' return, a time when he's going to restore all things. That's why the passage we're going to be in this morning is Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 25. That's why it's such a fitting passage for Advent. It, may not, it might not strike you as a Christmas text right away, but I think you'll see soon just how relevant it really is for this season. So I'm going to read the passage. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in, okay? Here's what God's Word says. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. And be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word never returns void when we when it's read, when it's spoken, God, it accomplishes everything for which it's been purposed. I thank you for the encouragement that is here in this passage. Lord, but we need help to be able to understand what your word is saying. We need help to be able to apply your word to our lives. So I pray this morning, right now, God, that you would uh, remove distractions and uh, or remove anything at all that might be hindering us from hearing what you have to say to each one of us this morning. Holy Spirit, please speak to us. Please help me as I preach. Apart from you, I can do nothing, God. I can't convince anyone of what's true in this passage, Lord. Only you can transform hearts from the inside out. And so I pray that you would do that. I pray that if there's anybody here today that doesn't have a rock-solid assurance in their future, in their eternal destiny, I pray that today they would be saved and that they would leave here knowing, Lord, that they would leave here knowing that they have a certain future in Christ. Lord, we love you. I pray now that you'd be with us, Lord. Help us see the unsearchable riches of Christ in Isaiah 65, 17 to 20. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this passage is a beautiful depiction of how Jesus Christ is going to reverse the curse of sin upon his return. I want to set a little bit of context for you so that we can understand what we're reading here. So the Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah to his people, to the Israelites, right after they had come out of exile. So they had been sent into exile by God because of their persistent sin and their refusal to trust in him. So God gave them over to their enemies, but God also graciously promised to save a remnant and to bring them back. And so in the context of Isaiah 65, the people have returned from exile, but they are a shell-shocked people. They're still living in the aftermath of the destruction that all of their sin has caused. And it's into this context that God promises to completely restore and to make new what sin has destroyed. And just like God's people in the 700s BC, around when this was written, when Isaiah wrote, we too are living in the midst of brokenness brought about by sin. We would have... No need to hope for a new heavens and a new earth if things were as they should be. But of course, things are not as they should be. And mankind tries all sorts of ways to fix the problem and to bring about a utopia on earth, but we're powerless to do so. Only God can do this because the true problem is not an outward problem that can be fixed through policy or through money or through innovation. The real problem is an inward problem. It's sin. Sin is the root problem of all that is wrong in the world. If you'll, if you'll recall with me, in Genesis 1 and 2, God created the heavens and the earth. He put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it, to, to be fruitful, and to multiply, and to be in a perfect relationship with him. But we don't get three chapters into the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they believed the lie of the serpent, and they rebelled against God. And as a result, God cursed the creation. Exercising dominion would now be difficult as creation fights back. God told Adam, the ground will now bear thorns and thistles in return for your hard work. 
childbearing would, would come with difficulty. Adam, uh, God told Eve that, that there would be pain in childbirth. Death also entered into the world as a judgment for, for sin. And now man's days are numbered, which also inhibits our ability to be able to carry out the creation mandate that God gave us to exercise dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply. Death hinders that. But the worst part of the curse that sin brought about was that Adam and Eve were cast out of paradise in God's presence. They were cast out of Eden and a, a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword, was placed at the entrance of the garden to keep them out. And all of this is why we are surrounded by brokenness, by heartache today. Cancer, tsunamis, pandemics, famine, war. It is all meant to point us back to the real problem of our sin. John Piper is a pastor and an author, and he writes this. He says, God put the natural world under a curse so that the physical horrors that we see around us and diseases and calamities would become vivid pictures of how horrible sin is. In other words, natural evil is a signpost pointing to the unspeakable horror of moral evil. So the destruction that we see all around us, the brokenness that we see all around us, I said this, I alluded to this last week, it's, it's the symptom of the real problem. Much like if you put your, the reason that we have a pain reflex is to protect us, so that if you put your hand on a hot stove, your body sends a message to your brain that says, ouch, and you remove your hand. Right? It's a symptom. If you didn't have that pain reflex, you wouldn't know that something damaging was happening to your body. And the brokenness around us is all like a signpost. It's screaming at us, something is broken, something is wrong. And that something is sin. And yet, in the midst of this, this judgment that God handed down towards sin in Genesis chapter 3, God also made a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, Verse 15, God was speaking to the serpent who had deceived Adam and Eve, and he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what, what this passage is saying is that the seed of the woman, one of the descendants of the woman, would crush the serpent and reverse the curse. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do at his first coming. In God's wisdom, Jesus, the eternal word of God, became flesh and he dwelt among us. And he did so so that he could die. So at Christmas time, we rejoice at the birth of Jesus who saves his people from their sin. Remember the announcement of the shepherds that Kendall just read earlier, Luke 2, 10, where they, the angels say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus was born to die for the sins of all who will trust in him. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. So all who trust in him are forgiven of their sins, and they re receive eternal life. Faith in Jesus is the only way to God. So my, my appeal to you this morning First and foremost, 
is that if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, that you would do so today. I want to read you Acts 3, 18 to 21. This is when Peter was preaching the gospel. And he says this, he says, What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see, the time for restoring all things, judgment day, is coming. The curse that sin brought upon the earth, all the brokenness that we see around us, it is being reversed when Jesus returns again. But in the meantime, God is calling all people everywhere to repent and to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Because you see, not everyone is going to enjoy the blessings of this new heavens and this new earth that we're about to talk about. It's for the remnant. It's for those who trust in Christ for their salvation. What a glorious day this is going to be for God's people when Jesus returns to to destroy and wipe out evil and to make all things new. But it will be a day of misery for those who reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, a day of deep regret and despair. So I urge you, if you have never done so, to please repent and believe the gospel this morning. There's no better gift you could receive this Christmas than your salvation. And it's offered to you freely as a gift, not by works. You don't need to do anything to fix yourself up. You don't need to get yourself ready to, you know, to come to God. You don't have to fix, fix yourself at all. You can come as you are in your weakness, in your sin, in your brokenness and come humbly to Jesus and he'll receive you this morning and he'll give you eternal life and forgiveness of sin. So please do so. That's my appeal to those who are not believers. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time, though, looking ahead to the glorious future that awaits everyone who trusts in Christ. Because that's really what Isaiah 65 is all about. This passage describes four ways that Jesus is going to reverse the curse upon his return. Upon Jesus' return, there will be no more vice, no more vanity, no more violence, And no more avail. And so we're going to walk through each four of those. And I'm going to explain them to you and show you how they are right here in this text. Let's start start with the first one. Upon Jesus' return, there will be no more vice. Now, word vice is just a name for sin, for immorality. And when Adam made the decision to sin, it plunged all of humanity into enslavement to sin. And every one of us has sadly followed in his footsteps. But in the new heavens and in the new earth, there will be no more sin. Look at verse 20. It says, says, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, these are there's two lines here in this verse, and they're both uh, metaphorical. Uh, so let me kind of show you what these mean. So that first line, the young man shall die a hundred years old. Basically, what Isaiah is saying here is that to die at 100 would be to die young. So it's a metaphoric way of saying that death will be no more. Like death is just, it's not going to be there anymore, right? And then the next line, it says the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now that doesn't mean that sinners will be in the new heavens and the new earth. 
It's a, what Isaiah is doing is it's a dramatic way to make the point that even if it were possible for a sinner to make his way into the new creation, the curse will find him out. Sin will be done away with and will not be found in the new creation. This is good news for Christians who long to finally be completely set free from sin. Are there any believers here this morning who are grieved at how prone you are to wander from God? Any believers who are grieved at how little love you seem to have for the Lord at times? Any believers here who are pained at how often you give in to besetting sin? Anybody? We have good company. The Apostle Paul bemoaned his own sinful nature, and he expressed his desire to be holy, to be free from sin. He said in Romans 7, 24, he cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ will upon his return completely. God will finish what he has started in us. Ephesians 1 says that if you were in Christ, you were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, John sees a vision of the church as a bride prepared for her groom. Listen to what it says. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God will finish what he started in his people. He saved you to make you holy, and he will certainly do it. I love the line in the the hymn, There is a Fountain. Some of you know it. That third verse says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will be completely and utterly free from sin and from our sinful nature and will never sin again. So don't be overcome with discouragement at indwelling sin in your life, Christian. It may assault you, but you are no longer enslaved to sin. So by the power of the Spirit, you can put to death the deeds of the body right now. And two, God will completely eradicate it from your life in the new heavens in the new earth. So don't be discouraged when you stumble and when you fall. Repent of your sin, confess it to the Lord, and continue on walking by the Spirit. Amen? There will also be no more vanity in the new heavens and the new earth. Upon Jesus' return, there will be no more vanity. And by vanity, I don't mean pride, but I mean vain toil and senseless loss. The curse of sin brought difficulty to God's creation mandates to exercise dominion and to be fruitful and multiply. Those were two of the primary tasks he gave Adam and Eve in the garden. And as I said earlier, sin disrupted that. It messed it up. But Isaiah 65 gives a picture of the reversal of this curse on work and on childbearing. Look at verse 22. It says, They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. So in the new heavens and the new earth, gone will be the days when we work only for the ground to bear thorns, or only for someone to take from us what we have worked so hard unjustly. Verse 23, we read this. It says, they shall not labor in vain. 
or bear children for iniquity. Gone will be the days of pain and childbirth. Can I get an amen, ladies? Gone will be the day when children are born into a world of calamity. In the new heavens and in the new earth, we will rule and reign with Jesus over all creation. God is going to restore this mandate for us to exercise dominion over the earth. See, the New Testament often speaks of the inheritance of believers, the inheritance that awaits us. Romans 8.17 says that if you are a believer, if you're a Christian, then you are a co-heir with Christ. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, through his perfect obedience, earned for us the promised inheritance and blessing that God promised to Abraham. We failed to obtain it on our own, but Christ purchased it on our behalf. And we've been adopted by God into his family. And so in Christ, we now share in that eternal inheritance. So by God's grace, believers will exercise dominion with Christ over the new heavens and the new earth forever, completely reversing the curse. You realize that? If you're a Christian, you will reign with Christ over the new heavens and the new earth forever. The new creation will not be a place where we float on clouds like babies with harps, like you see in these cartoons. We will work, but it will be completely gratifying work. It will never be in vain. The curse on being fruitful and multiplying will also be reversed in the new heavens and the new earth. Well, you say, well, how's that? Work, Jared. Didn't Jesus say that there's not going to be any more marriage in heaven? Well, remember that the purpose of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply was to fill the earth with God's image bearers. That's why God commanded us to do that. So that the earth would be filled with people who bear his image. But sin has marred this mandate. We are still, in, in one sense, we multiply God's image when children are born, but we've also multiplied sin and evil. But in the new heavens and in the new earth, the purpose of this mandate will be brought to fruition. Just listen to the picture in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. It says, I saw a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, the new creation will be filled with glorified image bearers who have been made holy by the blood of the Lamb. This creation mandate will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Indeed, the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, like Habakkuk 2.14 tells us. And if you are in Christ, you will be numbered amongst that multitude who will worship the Lamb before his throne forever and ever. God will multiply his image across the face of the earth. People from every tribe and tongue and nation reversing the curse on the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. So what does all this mean for us right now then? While we wait for the fulfillment of this hope in the new heavens and the new earth, first we ought to faithfully exercise dominion now. That means working for the glory of God and seeking to build up his kingdom and not your own. Mm -hmm. Don't make your career an idol, a tool to get you to the top. See your work for what God intends it to be. It's a means of exercising dominion and stewarding 
his good creation in his interests. And holding out to the hope that even though at times, as you labor, the ground may bear thorns and thistles, we have a hope that it will not always be so. God will restore it and redeem it even when our work is frustrating. We can remember that. And while we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, we also ought to be fruitful and multiply. And in part, this means, yes, having children. There's a this trend in the West towards autonomy, towards the self, towards self-advancement that views a large family as a burden to one's potential. And can I just tell you how unbiblical that is? Children are a gift from God. If the Lord leads you to get married, have children. Have lots of them. It glorifies God when you have children. It's multiplying God's image bearers. It is a good thing to have children. God's creation mandate in Genesis 1 didn't just go away. Like the gospel doesn't just erase it as if it doesn't exist. So have children, brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for all the babies we've got coming early in 2021. It's a good thing. We've got lots of babies coming. And for those of you who, like my wife and I, have struggled with infertility, also at the same time, we can know that we still, that doesn't mean that we don't have purpose or that we don't have an identity because God is going to make all things new. He is going to reverse the curse. So things are not as they should be. Yes, there is brokenness. It's a, a result of the fall that some couples are not able to conceive. But sister in Christ, if that's you, if you are struggling with infertility, just know that the Lord is with you and that he's near. Amen. And that God is going to reverse that curse that one day soon, that those tears as you're crying, they will be reversed into cries and shouts of joy. But being fruitful and multiplying takes on even more significance in light of the gospel. So yes, we should have physical babies, but Christians are called to be fruitful and multiply disciples. Amen. Do you know how we are going to arrive at that scene in Revelation 7, 9, where multitudes from every nation are standing before the throne? Do you know how we're going to get there? God, God ultimately is going to make it happen, but, but God saves sinners as disciples of Jesus share the gospel. That's the means through which God is accomplishing that. So Pillar DC, let's make spiritual babies this Christmas. Amen? Like that's what we're called to do, seriously. Let's be fruitful and multiply disciples. I urge you to pray about who you can share with this Christmas season. Maybe you're going to be seeing friends or family that you don't see all the time, you don't spend time with all the time. That's not an accident. God is bringing you to to those people so that you can minister to them. Um, There are, at the info table, if I can grab this thing, there are some of these. These are Christmas, this is the joy of Christmas. It's a short gospel tract that just shares the gospel in light of Christmas. And there's a bunch of these on the table uh, outside when you leave. I want to challenge each of you here to take three of these with you and hand them out. Hand each one of them out over the next week, okay? I've been handing them out over the past couple of weeks uh, at the gym or, you know, just if I see somebody outside or whatever, I want to just encourage you to go take three of these and hand them to somebody so that people can know the good news that Christ died for their sins, rose from the dead, and he's coming back to make all things new. Like, we talk to people all the time, oh, I just want peace on earth. Do we really want peace on earth? If we want it, guess what? The answer's in Christ. He's the one that's bringing it about. He's the one that's making all things new. So how can we just keep this to ourselves? We ought not to keep it to ourselves. 
We ought to share this good news with as many people as possible. And also, want you to consider whether God may be calling you to go to the nations or to plant a church in a city where there are few believers. We are a church planting church. One of our values, Fuller DC, is the Great Commission. We want to make Jesus known in DC and around the world. And the primary way that God does that is through his people, through the church. And so we plant churches so that the gospel might be proclaimed to people who haven't heard it. Who is God raising up in here? Is it you? Prayerfully consider how he may be leading you. The third way that Jesus is going to reverse the curse when he returns is that there will be no more violence. The curse of sin brought death into the world. And in response to his sin, God told Adam, from dust you came and to dust you will return. 100 out of 100 people are going to die, scientists say. It's just a fact. You're going to die. And death is the cloud that hangs over every single one of us. We are faced with reminders of it every single day. I was just talking to a good brother, uh, fellow church planter here in the city, who's planting in the southeast this past week, and he was sharing with me how they were out in the park, their church, sharing the gospel, and he witnessed two women get into a fight uh, and one of them pulled out brass knuckles, and so the other one pulled out a knife and stabbed the other one right in front of everybody, just right there. The death and the violence that fills our city here in D.C. and our world is heartbreaking, and it's real. And the fear of death can be crushing for those who have no assurance. Where do we go for hope in a world filled with violence and death? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus reversed the curse of death because he died in our place and then he defeated death by rising from the grave. And because he has overcome the grave, there will be no death in the new heavens and the new earth. It will be defeated forever. Look at verse 20. It says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. There will be no more lives cut short. No more unexpected tragedy. The power of death will be destroyed. Look at verse 25, it says that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy at all my holy mountain. There will be complete peace in the new heavens and the new earth. Death will be swallowed up forever. It will no longer be a reality. Even the lion, it says, will eat straw like an ox. There will be no danger to fear, no loss to mourn. I love how Isaiah 25, 8 depicts it. It says this, it says, On this mountain, on the mountain of the Lord, which is a way of saying the new Jerusalem, he, God will swallow up the covering that is cast over all the peoples. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one this Christmas. Perhaps you're plagued by fear of death or fear of dying. If you are a believer, you need to know that death is not the last word. Soon and very soon, every tear will be wiped away. Everlasting joy will be ours. Let's encourage one another with these words as we look forward to Jesus' second advent. 
The fourth way, this is the last point, the fourth way Jesus will reverse the curse is that there will be no more veil. And what I mean by veil is it's, it's the veil of separation between us and God. And the absolute worst aspect of the curse of sin was when Adam and Eve were expelled from the presence of God in Eden. And the good news is that Jesus came to reverse this curse. He removed our sin that came between us and God when he died on the cross. So if you have trusted in Jesus, that means that you are reconciled to God now. And yet we are not yet fully restored to what was lost in Eden. We don't yet see God face to face. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then when Jesus returns, then we will see him face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So when Jesus returns, we will be in the very presence of God. That's what verse 24 of Isaiah 65 means here in our text. God says, before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. He's going he's to be right there with us. We're going to be right in his presence. There's no more degree of separation. There's no more seeing in a mirror dimly. We will see him face to face. We will look upon the Lord and be in his presence forever. Revelation 21.3 depicts the same scene and it describes it like this. It says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is the supreme desire in the heart of every true believer, right there. That we get God. Let me ask you, what are you most looking forward to in heaven? If your answer is anything other than being in the presence of Christ Jesus forever, then you're missing the point of the gospel. Come on. Christ did not die for you to make you happy in something other than himself. That's the very essence of sin is looking to happiness and enjoyment and safety and fulfillment in the things that God has made. That's called idolatry. So if your desire to go to be in the new heavens and in the new earth is not driven by a desire to be with God, then it may be that you do not know God yet. Because if you knew him, you would know that he is far superior and far more glorious than anything else that he could possibly give us. He's greater than his gifts. I'm not saying that we don't enjoy his gifts, but his gifts are meant to point us to the giver. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field. He tells the parable in Matthew 13 about, he says, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man who was walking through a field and he found treasure and he buried the treasure back and he went and sold everything that he had. So that he could buy that treasure. Why did he do it? He sold everything else because he found something that was more valuable than everything else that he had. Jesus says, that's the gospel. The treasure in the field is me. I'm the one that's greater than everything else that you have. I'm the one that's worth leaving everything behind to follow. I'm the one whom all believers are looking forward to enjoying and having forever and ever for all eternity. That's the gospel. The gospel is that we get God. In heaven forever. Have you come to know him like this? Is Jesus your treasure? If he is, then rest assured that one day soon, you and I will be with him. What 
a glorious day it will be when Jesus returns. When we get to be with the one who has reversed the curse. There will be no more vice, no more vanity, no more violence, no more veil of separation between us and God. This Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ while we expectantly wait for his return when he will bring this promise into reality. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to respond to the message this morning by taking the Lord's Supper together. Uh, I want to briefly explain what the Lord's Supper is and why we do this. So the Lord's Supper is a fellowship meal for, for Christians. It's for believers. It's for people who treasure Jesus above everything else, like I just explained. Um, so if you are not a follower of Christ, or if you're a Christian visiting with us and you're under church discipline at your church, in other words, you're living in open sin right now and you know it, then I would ask you, please do not come and take the Lord's Supper. This is a fellowship meal for believers because part of what we're doing when we when we take the Lord's Supper is that we're, it's, we're making a declaration that our faith is in Christ's atoning death and resurrection on our behalf. So if you don't believe that, then you shouldn't take this meal, okay? Uh, you, if, but if you do believe that Jesus died for your sin on that cross, that he rose from the dead, and that it's only by faith in him that you can be saved, right? If that is you, then you are invited to come and to participate in this meal because we're remembering that Christ died for us and we're also declaring his death until he returns. Um, and if you're not a believer or if you if you just know like, yeah, Jared, I, I don't think I should take this the Lord's Supper right now because, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm living in sin and I know it, then what I would urge you to do during this time is instead of coming up and taking the supper, take this time just to pray in your seat where you are so that in Turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus today because we want you to take the Lord's Supper with us the next time we take it. And so you have the opportunity today to, to place your faith in Christ and to, to trust in him. And you anybody is invited to come and to, to, to trust in him and to take part in this. We would love for you to take the Lord's Supper with us together next time. So while we're taking the supper, take the opportunity to do that in your seat. Uh, and if you'd like to talk with one of us, about how to do that after the service. We'd love to help you. Love to. Um, so here's what we're going to do. I'm just going to ask you all, uh, this side of the room is going to come and take uh, the elements from this bowl and go back to your seat. This side will come and take them from this bowl and go back to your seat. So please make your way up. Um, and we'll go ahead and do one side at a time. We'll do this side of the room and then we'll do that side of the room. Uh, and then take it back to your seat and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.